Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, one of my favorite topics that we've tracked since the beginning of Coastal News Today and on uh, the American Shoreline Podcast is the fishery in Maine, uh, what's happening with the lobsters, uh, with the North Atlantic right whale, a highly endangered species. Uh, we've done shows on the science and the policy and on the government regulatory perspective. We've talked to the ropeless fishing gear technology people. And over the last three years, we've had the distinct pleasure of interviewing one of uh, the experts on this topic, David Abel, a reporter with the Boston Globe, award-winning reporter, part of a Pulitzer Prize-winning team at the Boston Globe, and an incredible filmmaker as well, who has created a series of documentaries on coastal and marine issues, most recently uh, entangled the uh, race to save the right whales from extinction, a great film. Uh, so, uh, Tyler, we're going to get a chance to talk about Maine and lobsters and, uh, and federal regulation with one of my favorite people on the American Shoreline, David Abel. I couldn't be more excited, Peter. Uh, one of the most important issues and one of the most dramatic issues on the American shoreline is the struggle to save the North Atlantic right whale, while at the same time balancing the other interests of the shoreline, particularly up there, Peter, in Maine, and also up in Canada, where uh, the lobster fishery is migrating to the north and is worth, I think everyone knows, if you've ever gone out for a lobster dinner, lobsters are a valuable fishery. And so we see a real, you know, almost like pouring gasoline on this interest to get lobsters out of the waters of Maine and even further north uh, and get them onto dinner plates across not only America, but the world. And it, sitting there in, in its way is this whale that is really kind of, Peter, are we, are we looking at the end of the North Atlantic right whale? That's kind of what we're looking at. It's, a, it's almost a slow motion car crash. And uh, it's dramatic, and it it press it pushes our our policy and management institutions to the limit. And so we are so fortunate to have David Abel on the show today to share his insight, his reporting, his observations from the main shoreline, a place that he has spent many years observing and talking to lobstermen and policy people and scientists. So, Peter, I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. And uh, before we dive into it, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest 
updates from around the American shoreline like what you're hearing and want to support the network, sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, David, welcome back to the American Shoreline Podcast. Always a pleasure to have you on the show uh, to talk about one of the most uh, dynamic issues on the American Shoreline. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me back. It's great to great to talk to you guys. Well, David, from afar in Coastal News today, we've been tracking the news about the Maine lobster fishery. And I want to open with this observation. Uh, uh, obviously, the uh, matter is reaching a high pitch now. Uh, but underneath it um, is a thriving fishery. And the statistics I want to just toss on the table for the 2021 uh, lobster season, which was the uh, one of the most valuable landings in the history of the Maine lobster fishery, $725 million dollars in value, an increase of more than 75% over the previous year. Um, The fishery has had 12 consecutive years of almost 100 million tons of landings. It continues to thrive uh, in both uh, quantity of lobsters captured and the value of that fishery. And yet, David, against that backdrop is this complete and total panic and meltdown. And as an observer down here in Texas, watching this fishery and the debate going on, I'm just a little flummoxed by what's happening. Could you, uh, could you share your overview of what the situation is now with respect to the Maine lobster fishery? Uh, Yeah, it, it, it is a compelling contradiction in the sense that uh, the $725 million just by the main lobster fishery, that doesn't include the rest of the New England uh, states that also catch lobster, uh, that lobster is a booming business. And that, that is a record number, uh, the catch in Maine. And, um, and yet uh, there are deep and reasonable concerns about what uh, what's in the immediate future for this fishery, which is which is hugely important to our uh, economy here in New England, and uh, and that stems from a raft of lawsuits that the lobster industry has repeatedly lost, and um, and of course, as you said at the top of the show, uh, it's those lawsuits are the result of. Um, the near extinction of one of our great whales, the North Atlantic uh, right whale, which has seen its population just over the past decade decline by roughly about 30%. And um, and oh, I had just learned the latest population figures, and there's uh, a continued, continued downward trend. Just this week, uh, there's this body called the North Atlantic Right Whale Consortium that releases annually its uh, its population estimate um, for for uh, right whales, and the uh, range this year uh, that they estimate for the whales is for anywhere from 322 to 350 right whales and that bottom number is uh is getting lower each year uh in terms of their 
in their range and estimates. Uh, and so uh, that decline uh, is primarily, although there are multiple causes of uh, premature deaths for right whales, but it's primarily as a result of entanglements in fishing gear and the primary fishing gear that has been responsible for seriously injuring and killing North Atlantic right whales are the vertical buoy lines that go from the sea floor to the surface uh, that's used by the lobster industry. It's also used by a Jonah crab fishery uh, and a snow crab fishery in, in Canadian waters. Uh, but these lines, uh, there are millions of them all throughout the North Atlantic and the Gulf of Maine. And that uh, has sparked the, there, these continued entanglements has sparked these lawsuits. Um, and the lawsuits have been, uh, there have been multiple now, uh, but they've consistently uh, found, judges have consistently found that the federal government is not doing enough uh, to protect uh, the right whales and to essentially ensure that they don't, um, that they, that they don't go extinct. And the current uh, numbers in which they're dying is, uh, by all accounts, violation of the Marine Mammal Protection Act. And, um, and when, uh, to, to directly answer the question you raised about this contradiction between the, the incredible uh, value and catch um, uh, that we've seen in the last year versus the incredible amount of concern um, uh, and fear within the lobster industry. Um, the the most recent rulings by a federal judge in Washington suggest that the uh, federal agency that oversees this fishery, NOAA, is going to require in the coming months, or is going to be forced to require that the lobster fishery reduce by ninety percent its risk of entangling North Atlantic right whales, and that will be uh, be very difficult to continue as the fishery has continued. And we can talk more about that. I've given you a long-winded answer already. But uh, in short, it's going to require serious changes about the way the fishery works. It might require closures. Um, it might require uh, banning vertical buoy lines. I, perfect, perfect setting up. I mean, that, there's the platter, ladies and gentlemen. And and David, you've been using uh, the magic word entangled. Uh, it's the title of your film. It is the uh, it is what is physically happening out there on the waters with whales and these vertical lines. But it's also a multifaceted title because uh, it's an entanglement of humans and nature. It's an entanglement between a local fishing uh, economy and the federal government that is charged with overseeing the Marine Mammal Protections Act and saving the endangered North Atlantic right whale. We're tied up. We are hung up within each other. And there's a major social battle underway. And I have to imagine, David, I haven't had the, the pleasure of viewing your Emmy-nominated film, but uh, I'd love for you to talk a minute about how you approached telling this story, this multifaceted and, you know, everything from dealing with the community of fishermen uh, to dealing with federal policy folks from from NOAA. Uh, how did you go about uh, 
telling that story and laying it out? Well, I, I fully agree. That, I mean, the reason we chose the title Entangled was uh, for the multiple meanings of that word. And uh, very clearly, uh, there are all kinds of tangles here. Uh, and I think the one of the chief ones uh, in this issue is the conflicted mission of, uh, of NOAA, of the National Marine Fisheries Service, which has to, um, which has the twin missions of both um, promoting commercial fisheries and protecting endangered species. And some people, and I think our film raises the question about whether it's really possible for one agency to carry effect, carry off effectively uh, doing both of those. Uh, but clearly, uh, this is an issue that, um, that has that when we started making the film uh, a few years ago was on a slow boil and has now reached sort of a fever pitch uh, or a high boil, uh, uh, if you will. Uh, just uh, last month, the Monterey Bay Aquarium added lobster uh, and several other vertical line caught fisheries to its um, seafood watch red list. Um, and on top of the lawsuits and on top of uh, other uh, regulations that have already taken effect, which have actually already imposed some closures uh, in the Gulf of Maine and affect uh, uh, a relatively small number of the um, uh, of lobstermen in Maine, uh, we are uh, seeing great concerns about the impact, at least. Uh, you know about the brand of lobster, uh, which is which is vital to the to coastal Maine and vital to the economy throughout New England, and uh, and this very influential uh, red list has essentially basically been a shot across the bow of the lobster fishery, and uh, and it's a message to restaurants and supermarkets and other uh, food retailers. That they should uh, they should reconsider whether they sell lobster. If I can just uh, swing right back around, and I, David, I, you're you're eminently qualified, and I, I telling the story of of your of your filmmaking. I only intend to <laughs> to kind of show how you've how much time you've spent on the shoreline. But could you talk a little bit over the uh, two years or so that you were making the film? what your approach was to telling this complicated story. I mean, there's lots of different angles, lots of different interests. Uh, it's a it's a complex bouquet uh, there uh, on the main coast. What was your approach? Yeah, so um, so I've made a number of films about, um, about how ultimately in broad strokes that climate change is not some distant abstract threat, but one that is affecting people's lives uh, here and now. And climate change is part of uh, is is a through line in this story, uh, in the sense that the warming, the rapidly warming waters of the Gulf of Maine, which are warming faster than just about any other body of water on the planet, uh, has caused the primary food for right whales to change uh, where they are and it's it's led uh, right whales to change their migration patterns and it's put them in uh, in more of a path of the um, uh, of vertical buoy lines essentially and has increased uh, entanglements arguably 
that all said, um, my my sense is that with a climate change story, there are it's very complicated, and empathy has to be the the first order. And so, there aren't really uh, villains in this story. There are just people who have different interests. And my tr- my effort was to try the best I could to to show people um, uh, and get people to understand that. Um, there is, on the one hand, this great whale that is uh, that nearly went extinct a century ago as a result of human beings uh, from hunting, and now a century later is uh, is plummeting in numbers again because of us. Uh, um, and we, you know, as a as a society, need to think: Do we want to be responsible for? the extinction of, of a great whale. Um, and I don't think anybody, including the lobstermen, want that. On the flip side, uh, I think it's really important that, that the folks who are trying to protect the right whales also respect and understand that there is a uh, vital economy, there is a history, there's a way of life tied uh, to the water and tied to um, tied to this fishery um, that everybody associates with New England and particularly Maine, and we don't want to see that vanish. We don't want to lose that, and we need to figure out how we can do both. How we can continue to support a robust fishery at the same time as ensure that. Uh, North Atlantic right whales don't go extinct. And our film uh, tries to tell the story from both points of view, as well as cast light on the federal government's failings uh, and inadequacies, and also look at the pos- at the possibility for, s- for solutions. And as we've discussed in the past, um, those solutions include new technology that are becoming more and more viable uh, that would allow for this to happen, uh, allow for uh, robust fishing uh, without um, without endangering uh, uh, North Atlantic right whales, and that would use so-called on-demand or ropeless fishing uh, f- um, uh, fishing um, traps that don't use vertical buoy lines. Well, David, such a good overview, and uh, I, I appreciate the perspective you brought. Um, Entangled is a companion to your other uh, film about the lobster industry, uh, Lobster Wars, which dealt with the dispute between Canadian and American lobster fishermen. Uh, and, and finding that balance between legitimate interests on the American shoreline is so common in industries around the coast of the world, but certainly in America. And it's why the discussion about how the Maine lobster fishery is being handled in light of uh, the declining population of right whales is so instructive and interesting to me. Uh, David, one of the things I've noticed in the coverage uh, over the last year is is two things. One, there is a fundamental factual difference of opinion on whether or not the lobster fishery uh, contributes at all 
uh, to uh, entanglements or risks to uh, the North Atlantic right whale. Uh, Patrice McCarran, the executive director of the Maine Lobstermen's Association and other organizations, including elected officials in Maine, have postulated that there is really no clear evidence that the Maine lobster fishery contributes to risk uh, to the right whale. Um, Obviously, the federal government, in its policy approach to this question, has reached a very different conclusion. Um, Can you speak about this factual divide? Because it's clearly not one or the other. I mean, it it is one or the other. They can't both be right. Um, Do... Can you can you shed some light on how uh, how the Maine lobster uh, industry uh, argues that there is no justifiable basis for regulation? I don't get it. Yeah, let me let me try to put that in some context. And uh, sadly, there's lots of misinformation out there, lots of uh, embellishment and efforts uh, to try to make the case that the lobster fishery has no uh, responsibility or um, or arguably any culpability here uh, in the uh, in in the declining uh, numbers for the right whale here here's what it comes down to ultimately uh, it's true that the the actual evidence of um, of the main fishery being, the primary um, source of responsibility for the for the decline of right whales. Um, it's true that there isn't exactly um, attributable in very much attributable information making that connection. But here's the reason why. Um, let me just take a step back. Number one, there there are roughly what three hundred and forty North Atlantic right whales left uh, on the planet. We know that roughly uh, at least 86%, according to the most recent study, have been have scars showing that they've been entangled uh, in fishing rope. Um, and then of those, we know that um, a majority, more than 60%, I believe, have been entangled more than once. Um, so we were very clear that that this species, and and we're also clear, I should say, that the leading cause over uh, the last two decades, when you tabulate all the uh, all the known deaths and serious injuries from North Atlantic right whales, the leading cause of death and serious injury over the last twenty plus years has been entanglement in fishing gear. The problem is that. Uh, and this is what you hear a lot from the main fishery uh, folks or the main lobster industry, is that very little of the gear has been recovered. It's very difficult uh, to recover the gear from entangled right whales. They sometimes just sink to the bottom of the ocean. Um, and I think in the number of uh, entanglements that have been um, identified, the the number was something to the effect of four percent have actually had um, had their um, their gear recovered, um, and then of that, only some one percent has been able to be attributed to a specific fishery. And the problem is that most of 
the lines that are used from Maine to Massachusetts to even Canadian waters has been very similar, uh, at least for lobster gear. That has recently changed in part because of this reporting problem. But what we know also is that more than 90% of all of the rope in the water is from the lobster industry and from Maine's lobster industry. Um, and, and we know from acoustic detection data and from visual data that the whales transit through Maine waters. And that's why the federal government last year imposed a closure in Maine's waters because they know that the whales transit through that area and the area has lots of, we're talking about uh, hundreds of thousands at any given time and millions of of lines over the course of a year um, in terms of the amount of rope in the water column. So, um, So it's true that the evidence linking these entanglements directly to the main fishery is thin, but it's thin because there because the main lobster fishery has fought for for years efforts to try to require gear markings that would allow scientists to make that make make those links. But just last year, uh, the federal government indeed imposed those requirements, and now. All Maine lobstermen are supposed to use uh, a, a purple-colored rope, and, uh, and Massachusetts lobstermen use another color rope, um, and I think New Hampshire lobstermen use another color rope. Uh, and so, um, um, in short, th- that might change as we now move into an era where there are new regulations. Hmm. David, I think, man, it just... It's such a quibble. I mean, I think you're right. There's a bit, sort of a, a a deliberate not knowing here. Um, the refusal to clearly mark the gear in the past has been a detriment to uh, identifying the specific uh, fishery involved in uh, it t- entanglements. But as you say, uh, the gear simply isn't recovered most of the time, nine more than ninety percent of the time. So it's difficult to attribute it exactly, but um, I, I'm really curious about where we go from here. Um, you've mentioned that the Maine Lobster uh, Association, Lobstermen's Association, and other organizations have challenged the federal uh, restrictions that are proposed on vertical lines in the fishery unsuccessfully. Um, in fact, the federal courts are very likely to mandate, as you say, additional and more stringent measures to reduce vertical lines by as much as 90%, which is stunning uh, because it's significantly higher than what was proposed at the beginning by the uh, right whale take reduction uh, team, which was, I think, a 60% reduction at one point. But, you know, how the hell, where do we go? I mean, it seems like the train wreck is coming, that the courts are going to push harder. Uh, They're going to mandate greater restrictions. The lobster industry doesn't seem to be on board with the idea that they even contribute. I mean, what do you you see coming down the road here? Well, so um, as I was saying before, uh, there are a lot of difficult problems in the world that don't have clear solutions. This, to me, is not one of them. 
there is a clear solution. And that clear solution is essentially rigging, uh, is ensuring that the federal government uh, um, helps the lobster industry, which is vital to our economy, uh, make the transition to using new kinds of fishing gear. And that has been a taboo uh, throughout the lobster fishery. There, have, there was a group that I wrote about for the Boston Globe earlier this year uh, in Massachusetts, where there has been, where in Cape Cod Bay, there's been closures uh, for something for much of the past decade uh, from February to May, when there are large, a large aggregation of whales feeding in Cape Cod Bay, there has been closures to lobster fishing. Um, and there was a small group of lobstermen who, who uh, were working with scientists at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and other, uh, and um, uh, the International Foundation for Animal Welfare, IFAW, they all teamed up to make a proposal to the federal government uh, and to the state government here uh, to allow uh, them to experiment using ropeless fishing uh, equipment uh, for uh, fishing in this closed area. And I have rarely, and I've covered a lot of heated meetings over the years, uh, and I have also been the recipient of death threats and you name it, but the ad hominem attacks uh, focused on these fishermen who proposed taking part in this in Massachusetts was intense. Um, and they were essentially cast out as traitors. And the same has happened in Maine, where there has been uh, excoriation of, uh, for, for a long time now, uh, any lobstermen who might give signals that they would be willing uh, to try out uh, this gear, which in the view of some in the lobster industry would be like a Trojan horse uh, for essentially allowing for this transformation of the industry, which they think will be uh, economically devastating because the gear is too expensive and they won't be able to rig their boats to do this. Um, before I address that question, I should say that the, the, the point of what I, what I was leading up to is that now, most recently, um, as these new as, it, as, as these new court mandates are coming and NOAA is going to be required to make these substantial changes to the lobster fishery, there is now finally, it seems, uh, a reckoning or a realization that, that lobstermen um, might want to start exploring and considering how best to use ropeless fishing gear and just Recently, um, uh, it was reported in a Maine newspaper that the mayor of Stonington, Maine, which is the which is like kind of the heart of the lobster industry. I think it's considered like the capital of the lobster industry in uh, mid coast Maine. Um, uh, has has said just that that his he's he's called on lobstermen to start. He, I think the the town of Stonington is looking at investing in uh in buying some ropeless gear for their fishermen to start uh start experimenting with uh so it seems like 
you know, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And, uh, and in this case, uh, court ordered change might be uh, a spark that uh, lights the flame of, of, of a change in the way the lobster industry uh, does, uh, does its business. I got to say that that's extremely positive news to hear that there are civic leaders uh, leaning into what the future of the industry could look like in solving this problem. Uh, and I have to say that that's incredibly encouraging. I also just want to give a quick note for our loyal listeners. This show is going to come out a little later uh, in the day than you're probably accustomed to. And the reason why is this data that David is sharing with us of the numbers, the estimated numbers of North Atlantic right whales is brand new, David. And could you just really quickly explain uh, this consortium for the North Atlantic right whale and uh, it's the North Atlantic right whale consortium and what role they play in providing this data and uh, disseminating it and how, how do they work in the ecosystem? Um. Well, the consortium is basically a um, a group that every year it's I think it's organized by the New England Aquarium uh, and their cabal of of uh, of right whale and whale scientists, but they bring together uh, academics, scientists, um, lobstermen, uh, fish, other fishermen. Um, and anyone else who's interested can attend their, uh, public meeting, uh, which will be held, I believe, uh, in the coming, uh, this week, starting maybe even Monday. I, um, I I don't know exactly the dates, but, uh, it's coming up and, uh, and you can tune in virtually, uh, online. I think you have to register in advance though. And it's just, uh, you'll, you'll, it's really fascinating because they present all kinds of uh, interesting papers and the latest research. Uh, there'll be one paper uh, that I recently uh, received that looks at, uh, for example, uh, the trials of breeding females in the right whale population and, uh, and how their numbers have declined and how fewer uh, right whales are um, are being uh, born to first-time mothers, uh, meaning that there's uh, fewer, um, it, it seems like there are a variety of explanations why, uh, unfortunately, female right whales are not breeding uh, at the rate that they used to. And there are now an estimated uh, just 72 breeding females in the population. And when you don't have breeding females, you have functional extinction. I'll tell you the the other the flip side though is if you look at the if you go to the consortium website and you look at the report card uh, tab, you can see a uh, a longitudinal graph of the estimated right whale population over time. And what's stunning, and of course since about 2010, uh, growth of the species stopped. The numbers. Uh, kind of uh, flattened out and then uh, began to decline rapidly. But starting in from about 1990 to the 2000s to 2010, the numbers were going up. So, you know, I, I do have to say, I think that this is a problem that is 
solvable. I, I believe that. I, I, I hope that it is. I think we can turn this trend around, but we are going to have to work together. And one of the things that I see, uh, David, that concerns me a great deal is on the one hand, there's this, there's the courts and there's these mandates and there's the law. That's all, you know, fairly punitive. And then we have this issue with ropeless technology, which costs money. I mean, Peter, you know, I've been saying this for years. We just got to buy these guys the gear, in my opinion, or at least just get the ball rolling. The barrier to entry to get this superior equipment should be as low as possible. And if the issue is cost, we ought to be able to subsidize that for the sake of solving this incredible incredible entanglement problem. But David, the other side of it is that politically we, we, we exist in a tumultuous, divided time. And what we've seen from Maine, you did mention this, this mayor. I love to hear that. But for, at, the, at the federal level, the governor, it seems as though the state and its, its federal delegation is casting doubt into the validity of the science. And I wonder how I wonder, you know, are we going to, is, is the federal system, is the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the, the various uh, triggers, is, is this process going to be allowed to play out without being, you know, molested by some sort of political action? Well, it already has. Um, and you're right. I mean, it is, uh, it has become thoroughly entangled uh, in politics. And, uh and you know that's understandable. I mean, uh, you, you gotta you gotta respect that you have um, the political leaders on both sides of the aisle. Uh, it's not a it's not a partisan issue in in Maine at least. Uh, you, you, there's and and even here um, in Massachusetts. Um, we have both sides of the aisle that consistently come to the defense of uh, of fishermen, um, but um, but the misrepresentation uh, of the data and the attacking of the federal agencies that are trying to uh, trying to protect the right whales just seems beyond the pale, uh, and that's been going on for for some time and is now. Uh, is is now kind of crescendoing in terms of uh, the vitriolic uh, attacks, uh, and there's you know promises to uh, appeal uh, um, the court decisions. In fact, uh, uh, the Maine Lobster uh, Association just uh, hired a um, a former solicitor general uh, from. Uh, I'm not sure exactly which administration, uh, but to represent them uh, as they try to uh, seek intervention from uh, appeals courts and if ultimately probably the Supreme Court. It's frustrating. I think what the observation you made is is kind of the center point of it for me. Um, there are a lot of intractable uh, intractable problems um, that have no clear solution. Uh, this is not one of those cases. Um, we understand that the risk of the fishery is the vertical lines. There is a way to fish for these lobsters by putting a trap on the bottom without a line. 
uh, deployed until the trap is going to be picked up. And Tyler and I did a good show with uh, some of the guys who are working on that technology, the ropeless fishing gear. Uh, the buoy is released uh, by a radio signal from the boat when they come to pick it up, and the line is not vertical in the water until it is being uh, withdrawn from the water. Um, it is expensive. It, it's a new way of working. But damn it, David, this is this is the kind of stuff that just pisses me off. I mean, we've got, a, I believe, Janet Mills, the governor of Maine, is a Democrat, if I'm right, isn't she? Uh, as you say, par- political elected leaders on both sides of the issue are are going hard line on this. And rather than easing the transition, rather than working with the federal government to create whatever funding source we need to further refine, develop, and deploy this technology so that these guys can continue to harvest 100 million pounds of lobsters every year, rather than that, what we're going into right now is a scorched earth uh, policy uh, between the, the courts, what the courts are trying to do and what the state and the fisher, fisher uh, associations are up to. And that is just, I tell you, I, you just, I'm just frustrated by the fact that what's, I, I don't know. It just seems like there's a solution sitting on the table. Damn it. Let's figure it out and take it. What? I don't know. I don't get it. And there are bills in Congress uh, that would that you know Rep. Seth uh, Moulton here from Massachusetts, a former presidential candidate uh, for the Democratic Party, uh, has uh, a bill. He he represents Gloucester, and uh, and he's very in tuned with both of these issues, both sides of these issues, uh, and he's one of the rare political leaders, I'd say, who who has really tried to strike a balance uh, and he has a bill uh, that would, that would essentially try to provide money to help the lobster fishery make a transition. Um, We don't necessarily need a bill. Uh, I think Noah could appropriate some money uh, to ease that transition. Um, And there could also be tax incentives and other ways to make this, uh, uh, easier on the lobster industry. Um, but this seems like it's going to be the future. And uh, the only question is, is there going to be uh, um, a, a, a just a, a kicking and screaming fight to this uh, new way of fishing? Or is there going to be some sort of uh, consensus uh, at some point that this is the path forward? And how, how do we get there? How do we refine the technology? So technically it works better. And politically we solve some of the remaining problems about how to, how to ID, uh, all the, uh, all the different buoys so that, you know, the, the trawlers aren't fishing over, over the, uh, uh, over the traps, um, which now they don't because they can see the buoys, um, and they're, a host of things that still have to be figured out um, uh, to make ropeless fishing work, but it's it's possible, uh, um, and I, I and I think that uh, there are a lot of really smart people working on this. Well, as you say, the clock could not be ticking louder. Uh, you mentioned that the surveys currently show seventy-two breeding females in this population, uh, ladies and gentlemen. That is 
absolutely. I've got to think we're getting down to the bottom line here with these animals. Uh, and uh, hopefully uh, we can hammer out the new approach before it's too late. I, I hate to, I'm not trying to be, you know, um, doomsday about it, but damn, 72 breeding females is a really population at risk. Clock's ticking. And that number, by the way, is a few years old, even though it's the latest number. It's based on modeling uh, from data that I think was in 2018. So those numbers might even be uh, lower. And I just want to jump in and talk a little bit about fishing culture. You know, I, you know, there was a time when uh, a fisherman would go out, you know, alone or with one uh, first mate handled the boat. Uh, there was no high tech equipment. Let me tell you, those days are gone. Uh, I, I imagine that there are still some pretty simple lobster fishermen in Maine still doing it that way. But by and large, these vessels have become very advanced and the, it, you know, GPS and all sorts of modern technologies that you would expect to see on a vessel that's going into the ocean to go harvest a wild fishery. And the idea that go, shifting to vertical lines would be a cultural step away is to me nuts because Peter, we were at the Ocean Exploration Forum. And if I, I'll tell you, we're, we're coming into the big data internet, the, the, the internet robot age and ocean tech is a huge deal. And it's coming at us from all sorts of a, uh, corners in the community to assist all sorts of different uh, issues from, you know, tra I'm thinking about the data on these whales. I mean, one of the ways, David, you mentioned is acoustic monitoring, which is a, a kind of a new technology that is coming to the fore. And I just have to imagine that we're going to be catching fish very, very differently in the next 10, 20, 30 years than we are today. And if you're a fisherman, particularly a young fisherman, or you're a fisherman that wants to see your tradition move forward, you got to be thinking about how do I adapt and roll with the changes that are happening to everyone all around us. I just, you know, I, I, it's a culture thing for me. And uh, I think that that should be viewed as a positive. That's why I like what you said, David, about that, that mayor. Uh, but you know, it's the, the American shoreline is a busy place and, uh, the main shoreline is one of the busiest. And I understand David that, uh, there is now, uh, the, the offshore wind craze that is sweeping across, uh, all pretty much everywhere on the American shoreline, but certainly in, on the East coast is now coming up to Maine. And that of course there's a whale, uh, and I imagine a fisherman component to this discussion. Would you bring our listeners up to speed on offshore wind in Maine? Sure. Um, well, um, there are no turbines uh, uh, at the moment planned for the Gulf of Maine, uh, but I just actually had a front page story last week uh, about the prospect of that happening. We uh, in southern New England uh, are uh, starting to see the beginnings of the first major commercial offshore wind farms in the United States. And so we're going to see uh, these very significant uh, wind farms south of uh, Martha's Vineyard um, uh, uh, being 
erected in the next couple of years. And that is the first wave of, of offshore wind farms that will be taking root all, all along the East Coast. Uh, but one of the problems uh, for of offshore wind is that you, you, there are only certain places that's suitable. The, um, you can't put turbines in waters uh, that are too deep, uh, at least traditional turbines. And some two-thirds of the estimated uh, offshore wind uh, capacity is in deeper waters. And there's new technology that is being developed uh, actually in Maine, um, the, one of the leading um, uh, uh, outfits that is um, that is developing uh, these new offshore uh, wind turbines that can float uh, is being developed by the University of Maine. And there are these, these incredibly um, uh, gargantuan um, uh, turbines that are moored to the sea floor through anchors and, and cables that are as thick as telephone poles, and they can they they are going to have to be able to survive five hundred year storms with seventy foot uh, seas and hundred mile per hour winds, and all modeling suggests that they're viable. And the Fed and the 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 Biden administration just last month uh, called for thirty terawatts worth of offshore wind turbines to be developed, uh, floating offshore wind turbines to be developed by the end of this decade. So uh, so there's a lot of pieces uh, uh, that are coming together uh, all around the country and the world. Uh, we already see these floating offshore winds in Europe, particularly off the coasts of Scotland and, and Portugal. Uh, and I think there was just a lease proposed uh, off of um, uh, off the west coast, uh, where the water yep, yeah, where the waters yep. are too deep for traditional uh, wind turbines, but not for these floating turbines. And that's what's coming to the Gulf of Maine, and that's what's uh, on the on the horizon. And that uh, just like the the prospect for ropeless fishing taking over the uh, the lobster industry the concerns about uh, having all these turbines in potential fishing grounds is causing all kinds of uh, uh, sturm and dang within the, uh, within the fishing uh, community as well. As if it weren't complicated enough already. <laughs> you know, David, it's why it's so important that, uh, that there are journalists like yourself who are dedicated to subject. I know you cover and report on a wide range of subjects uh, in your career, uh, but your focus on on the, what's happening in Maine and on on uh, coastal issues generally is such a benefit to readers around the country. Uh, these are hard problems, and it has to do with the fact that we ask so much of uh, the ocean spaces near shore. Uh, the Gulf of Maine has to be the most lucrative fishery in the United States. It also, in the lower 48, it also has to now be a, a wind power generation place and a wonderful place to recreate and sail. I mean, we want these spaces to do it all. And it requires a sophisticated balancing of interest. Um, I really appreciate what you said, that there aren't any boogeymen in this thing. There's no villains. This is about legitimate 
interests and how best to manage them. Um, it's really uh, a difficult uh, equation to work out, uh, particularly in light of climate change and and shifting fisheries and shifting conditions. And uh, it's what makes your work at the Boston Globe and your work as a documentary filmmaker so valuable uh, to listeners and readers uh, around the country. And and we, we just want to thank you again for being on the show. Um, I'm not trying to wrap it up just yet, but I did want to acknowledge that, David. I think I think the coverage you're doing uh, is instructive uh, to many, many other parts of the, of the country and around the world in terms of management of these complex uh, economic interests on the shore. So thanks. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for the work you do. It's really, really great. Um, when it comes to the wind power industry, we saw uh, earlier this year, I think it was in February, uh, the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management's uh, offer of wind power sites off of New York, New Jersey, you know, in the northeast of Block Island sale, uh, brought in $4.37 billion in bids, um, an extraordinary number. Talk about record setting. It's not just the lobster fishermen that are setting records these days, but that was uh, the most valuable lease sale, oil and gas or wind power ever uh, from the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management. Um, are you beginning to see uh, the development in this? In, when you look at the development of the industry, the early discussions, um, I just wondered if, if are you are you optimistic about the ability to integrate this massive new industry uh, into the Gulf of Maine? Potentially massive new industry. Um, how is the debate shaping up? Uh, how are the politics shaping up? Is the state of Maine behind it? What what are you seeing in in this integration that uh, was likely to occur? Well, I mean, when you look at the economics of bringing in offshore wind, especially these uh, uh, floating wind turbines that can operate much further out to sea, I mean, the vast majority of the fishery is close to shore. It's within, what, three miles of, uh, of the coast where the vast majority of lobster fishing occurs and other kinds of fishing. Um, and so these, these um, floating wind turbines can be 20, 30, 40 miles offshore. And, um, uh, and the federal government has, I think, learned from some of its early mistakes about, about citing uh, these things. And it seems like they're cognizant of the need to uh, try to uh, 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 coordinate with the fishing industry and bring them into the fold and find certain ways to win uh, their support. Um, but when you look at the overall picture, we have more offshore wind capacity. I mean, we with a, a few floating wind farms, we could we could power all of Maine. I mean. The cost of heating a home in Maine, which is now usually oil or gas, is very expensive, and only more so in a volatile world uh, um, like we're living in now, with what's happening in Ukraine and and the cost of fossil fuels uh, skyrocketing. Um, you could you could essentially maintain a uniform cost. Uh, um, without polluting the environment and 
Um, and it would be our own uh, electrical uh, electricity generation. And so it's hard to see a world where that technology is viable um, that, that, that it also isn't politically popular, where people aren't having to spend all this money on oil and gas to heat their homes in the winter uh, or cool them in the summers. Come on, Mainers. Uh, good opportunity here. Ladies and gentlemen, it is David Abel. He is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist with the Boston Globe, a documentary filmmaker, award-winning. Congratulations on the Emmy nomination. Absolutely incredible, David. Uh, we always enjoy listening to you on this show. Uh, you bring so much insight and uh, to these complex discussions. Uh, we can't thank you enough for updating us and we sure hope you'll have us. Uh, we can have you back on uh, down the road to uh, keep up with the complex developments going on on the uh, New England shoreline, and particularly in Maine. Thank you much for your time today. Uh, my pleasure. Always great to talk to you guys. Thank you so much.